years ago, I think it might have been Harry Cannon who talked about student affairs as the moral compass, compass of the of campus. The campus. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think if we spin out some of these legislative proposals, um, it's going to significantly limit um, what folks in student affairs can do and what we know is the right thing to do. Yep. And not just because it's uh, a moral compass issue, but because we have years of educational research and years of people in the trenches doing the work who know better than politicians um, about how to create educational environments where all students can be successful. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm Rochelle Pope, your host. Today we have planned a special conversation with another student affairs legend, Susan Robb Jones. Susan is an emeritus professor in the Higher Education Student Affairs Program at The Ohio State University. And prior to rejoining the faculty at Ohio State, she was an associate professor and director of the College Student Personnel Program at the University of Maryland at College Park. She's published a number of books, many of them ubiquitous to our field. Student Service is a Handbook for the Profession, affectionately known as the Green Book. Um, College Student Development Theory, Using a Critical Framework, using critical frameworks to name just two. She also has more than 28, 30 book chapters and just numerous journal articles, mostly in our top tier journals, including the Journal of College Student Development and the Journal of Higher Education. She's also received many of our profession's top awards, including this year's 2023 Lifetime Achievement Award from ACPA. So this should be a great conversation. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. And find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity. A true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm broadcasting from Williamsville, New York, near the campus of the University of Buffalo, where I serve as the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty and Student Affairs and the Unit Diversity Officer for the Graduate School of Education. I'm also a professor in the higher education program, and the University of Buffalo is situated on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Haudenosaunee people. Susan, let's get to you. I am so grateful for you joining us today, and I'm so ready for this conversation. Now, I know that you were rather reluctant to join us on Student Affairs Now because we were going to talk about you and your career, and especially as we place you in one of our Student Affairs Legends episodes. I know that you're uncomfortable with that label, but so many of your faculty colleagues, the HESA students, and both seasoned practitioners and those who are just entering the field see you as just that, a legend. They, we, <laughs> want to know more about your journey and learn from you and your experience. We've all been reading your words for years and now we'd like to hear them. So let's just begin by hearing a little bit about your career, your journey, 
your leadership, and essentially just tell us about you. So spend a little bit of time telling us about how you got to the positions that you eventually ended up in and then ended up leaving. Retiring. The, Retiring. It's a great, it's a great chapter. It's a great chapter. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for having me. It's a privilege to be with you today and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, let's see, I, you know, I probably started on this journey like others, um, which was somewhat unintentionally. I had no idea that um, I could be an RA for life uh, after being an RA in my undergraduate years and um, thriving uh, in that role. Um, I went to a liberal arts institution in upstate New York. Um, I fought going to that institution because the guidance counselor at my high school said it would be the best place for me. And so that was a surefire indication that I should not go there. But darn it, she turned out to be right. And um, I thrived intellectually. I was a student athlete and I was an RA. And um, this will date me, but maybe that's why I'm a legend because I'm still around <laughs> long enough to recall that there were deans of men and women um, at a point in our history. And it was the Dean of Women at St. Lawrence who said to me, uh, you know, you're really good in this role and have you thought about graduate school? Which of course I hadn't. Um, but I went to the University of Vermont uh, for my master's program um, and again, distinguished myself by uh, working at Ben and Jerry's at, um, as one of the original ice cream makers and would go to my master's classes with my Ben and Jerry's t-shirt with ice cream all over it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I also, again, encountered incredible mentors uh, like Jackie Gribbons and Jill Carnegie, um, who nurtured uh, me and my a little bit of a rebellious spirit um, and uh, in many ways paved the way for me to begin to think about the kinds of contributions I might make um, to student affairs. So after I got my master's, I spent um, 10 years working as a student affairs practitioner before beginning my PhD. I, was, um, I started out in residence life. Um, I still believe that uh, anyone who works in residence life has gains experience in the microcosm of the entire university and that it's absolutely invaluable training. I, whether you um, stay in residence life or not. Um, so I started out there and then I went to a small liberal arts college um, in Burlington, Vermont, and um, uh, held just about every role um, that uh, there was in student affairs. Um, when you're at a really small college, you wear many, many hats. And uh, when the president realized that there were things I could do, then she would just pass that off to me, which included being the tennis coach for a period of time. Um, but again, outstanding training. And I, I, when I look back, I think my experiences in liberal arts institutions really shaped uh, mm -hmm. who I became as a teacher, what I valued in educational environments, the importance of creating community um, and so on. Um, I then uh, 
decided that it was time to pursue my PhD because I thought I was going to be a vice president for student affairs. And I went to the University of Maryland, where I once again encountered amazing people. Um, it was like after working for 10 years um, in the field at most recently as the dean of students when I um, went on to start my PhD. Um, it, being in my PhD program was like being on an intellectual vacation. Uh, it was incredible. You know, when my phone rang, I didn't have to worry that it was the president, the police, or someone's parents. Um, uh, so I thoroughly embraced that opportunity and originally thought I was going to run in, get my degree, and run run back out into the field of practice. Um, but because of uh, the people with whom I worked at Maryland, I began to think about what it might mean to be a faculty member. Hmm. Um, and so I began my faculty career after then, 14 years after my master's program with a good amount of professional experience and went to Ohio State where I was a faculty member, but I also was the director of um, the student personnel assistantship program that's finally referred to as the spa program. And no, there are no pedicures or manicures offered, but um, <laughs> there are uh, so many incredibly loyal uh, spa alums. I think you know one very well, Rochelle. Um, and it was really an honor to, uh, to direct that program. So I had somewhat of a unique faculty role initially which was I had some pretty significant administrative experience um, and I was in the classroom teaching and advising. What that administrative experience required of me was um, because I was overseeing all the assistantships, I needed to develop and maintain really strong relationships with the student affairs folks at Ohio State. So I, I felt like that really helped me keep my keep in touch with the realities of, um, of student affairs practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that ultimately made me a better teacher um, that when I was uh, in the classroom and students were asking like, what are the applications to practice of this theory or that theory uh, that I could draw from um, the realities of campus life uh, to try to make those connections. Um, I went back to the University of Maryland for five years um, and then returned to Ohio State. So I've really just been to Ohio State in Maryland, back and <laughs> forth, back and forth. Um, and then as you alluded to, I retired from Ohio State. Uh, it's been two years now. Uh, hard to believe. Yeah, very hard to believe. Um, so I think those are the high points just in terms of where I've been and, and what I've done. Well, you know, it's a, it's amazing with me even knowing that journey, you know, um, but there, I think there's a, some parts that you left out. Susan, <laughs> one of the ways in which people know you is through your writing. And there are a lot of people who write, there are a lot of people who are um, professors who write, but the, the, the pieces that you wrote, um, and that you've contributed to are so deeply ingrained in our profession. How did you move from being this um, really solid um, administrator to getting a PhD, thinking you were going to be um, 
um, um, a vice president of student affairs or whatever, and moving into this scholar role that you have certainly, you know, um, held that mantle quite well. And, you know, what do you, what do you think was that? What, what, what moved you into understanding that part of the faculty role so well? Um, let me answer that in two ways. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think understanding that part of the faculty role actually took me a while to figure out. But the first way I would answer it is that I have always loved to write. Mm -hmm. um, as a young child, as a, as a kid, I loved to write. And I expressed myself through my writing. Um, I was very much of an introvert. Um, some people find that hard to believe. Um, but I, I uh, found um, a lot of joy and sort of sense-making about my own, who I was and who I was becoming through writing. And I had really good English teachers um, in high school. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I still have the paper that I wrote in eighth grade where I got an A slash F. And the, the teacher wrote A for content, F for way too many commas. So, you know, to this day, I still think about when I put a comma um, in, a, in a paper. Um, so the writing part of it felt like coming home for me. Um, the expressing myself, the working out of ideas um, and solving problems uh, felt very natural to me. Um, and uh, again, at Maryland, I had an amazing group of faculty with whom I learned um, and who supported my engaging uh, new, maybe new ideas for the field, newer ideas. Um, when I first went to Maryland, I started taking women's studies classes and had a class on race, class, and gender with Bonnie Thornton Dill. So I was like putting sociological ideas together with student development. And, you know, no one said to me like, yeah, no, those don't work. Those aren't meant to, you can't put developmental theory with black feminist thought. You can't put those things together. Um, no one said that to me. Um, so the writing part of it, always, I, I, I love to write. I, I have always loved to write. Um, and I loved that I got to write as part of my job. The politics of faculty life or what it meant to be successful as a faculty member took me some time. And at the risk of being, you know, very blunt, uh, when I first became a tenured faculty member, I had this realization one day that, you know, in student affairs practice, you need to develop relationships with people to be successful. You need to kind of get along with people to be successful. You need to work with others to be successful. You can be a really successful faculty member without being nice or without getting to know any of your colleagues um, and working in a very insular, isolated environment. And that was not me at all. Um, and so I had to figure out a way that I could be successful in that environment um, while staying true to who I was. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the benefit of having the years of experience that I had prior to getting on the tenure track was that I could say, hey, I, I'm good at some other things too. 
So if this tenure thing doesn't work out, I can return to being an administrator, which I didn't not like. I just kind of found my way into, um, into faculty life. Um, so, you know, even though you noted that I've been prolific in my publications, I actually think of myself as somebody who was slower in my production of, of writing. I was never somebody who, and maybe it was because most of my research was qualitative in nature, but, you know, I was never somebody who was just like churning out pieces um, because I knew people were going to count the number of publications that I had when I went up for tenure. I just wanted the, to do the research and write the articles that were meaningful to me for whatever reason and also that I hoped stood some chance of making um, an influence on, on the field in important ways. Sure. Yeah, you know, that makes so much sense and resonates um, so much with me, so much of what you said. But the one thing that I think we might wanna um, clarify for some of the folks who weren't around at the time when it was a surprise to you or not a surprise, but it was uh, that no one said to you, oh, you can't bl bring black studies or women's studies into this work of student affairs that there was a time when there was uh, when looking at issues of of race and gender and all of those kinds of things, um, the things that we see as so central right now, were not easily brought in. We're not um, considered part of the core curriculum. And so I know that we would have some students on here listening or some early professionals who weren't part of that, who didn't know that. And that we were really pushing boundaries to say, you know, this belongs here. And we can't understand the experiences of students without looking at these other areas. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, probably when you and I went through our master's programs, we learned about Perry and Chickering and Carol Gilligan, and maybe we were, at least when I went through my master's program, Bill Cross and Janet Helms, um, the folks who uh, soon, like the next move, I think, um, you know, they were, they hadn't published yet when mm -hmm. I was in my master's program. Um, but even when they were publishing, we weren't bringing, at least in my, my view, we weren't putting into conversation with, with one another right. the Black racial identity theories with student development theories. Right. And so, you know, many of us learn those as sort of discrete bodies of knowledge. Um, and, you know, I, as, as I know you're aware, my dissertation really asked the question, um, globally, like what happens if we do put them into conversation with one another? What, what might identity look like if you take into account um, race and social class and religion and sexual identity? Um, uh, and, you know, once again, I was very fortunate to have a dissertation advisor who said, yeah, go for it. Like, let's um, pursue this. Um, uh, but we, you know, we had tend to view things in more discrete ways. 
Um, whereas, you know, now I think we maybe even have lost some of the earlier ways of approaching student development and think, of course, you know, you, you have to look at these things all together. Right. And, you know, for me, and I think we've had this conversation that my issue with that is I think that's wonderful what we're doing now looking at it all. But I believe that our um, focus on student development theories is only now focusing on identity theory to some degree. We're forgetting to look at the cognitive development, how we, you know, we haven't done enough work there to say, what are the differences? How is this connected here? Or, um, or some of the other, what, um, um, Bob Rogers used to refer to as the families of thought, right? Yeah, so, right. But, you know, that's a whole conversation for another episode, which we probably should do on <laughs> student development. What is it? Where is it going? You know, and all that. So I listened to you talk about how you came up in the field. I listened to you talk about um, um, your surprise that this was actually a field that one could stay in and all of that. And your um, your teaching and your scholarship and so I have to go back to this original thing that you being so uncomfortable with the um, the moniker of legend in student affairs. And I'm, I guess I want to know what does legend mean to you? And if not you, who? Who are those legends in the field? Who would you consider? And I, I just want you to know, we have a very broad definition of legend. People that <laughs> have made a difference. You know, you got a Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, that's not the reason you're here because of the Lifetime Achievement Award, but because of this lifelong um a service to this profession yeah well i i appreciate it um and i don't want to you know dismiss um uh the the honor really of being identified as a legend you know i guess maybe it's as simple as i don't think people should identify themselves as legends i think other people should identify sort of how i feel about allies like i don't think i should like put myself out there as like, I am the greatest ally. I think other sh people should be the judge of that. Um, uh, I do um, hope and uh, uh, that I have made a contribution. I mean, I think I, I grew up in a way um, where I was um, educated to believe that that's what you do is you try to make the world a better place. Um, mm -hmm. For, for others. And uh, so I, I do appreciate that I have been able to introduce um, some, which probably now aren't viewed as new ideas, but at the time um, I was able to introduce some new ideas to the field. I was able to perhaps promote some conversations that weren't happening um, prior. Um, I know at Maryland, I was one of the first doctoral students to do a qualitative study. Um, so again, I kind of grew up in this environment where if it's not statistical analysis, it's not a value. And I, I, I think I was able to um, show other faculty colleagues that the worthiness of qualitative research. Um, so, uh, you know, in many ways, the questions that I pursued starting with my dissertation were questions that I had for myself. Mm -hmm. um, so I am a firm believer in Lee Kneffelkamp's comment that she made so many years ago that 
all research is autobiographical. Right. Um, you know, I, I pursued this question about multiple identities because I didn't see myself in the theories that I was studying in my master's program. Um, and then again, I was just in this great intellectual environment at Maryland where I could go and take classes from somebody like Bonnie Thornton Dill or Patricia Hill Collins. Um, so I, I have um, just been very fortunate that I've been surrounded by people who encouraged me to bring these ideas forward. Yeah, I think that's an amazing thing that our profession does is it says, uh, well, I love, you know, one of my colleagues asks this question all the time, Nate Dunbarnett, he, he doesn't ask our students, what do you want to do? Or um, what area are you interested in? What functional area? He says, what difference do you want to make? And so I just love that question that that's what this profession um, is about. What's the difference we want to make and how do we make it? So speaking of difference, who is that someone or someones, you know, put as many um, people out as you want, who made a profound difference for, for you in this field? Uh, well, um, I, I guess uh, not to rerun my biography, but um, I had parents who valued education um, above almost all education and family. Um, and so I was very fortunate to, to be in great educational environments my entire life. Um, I mentioned the Dean of Women, Ginny Schwartz at St. Lawrence. Um, I learned so much from her. Um, and as I mentioned, was encouraged. Um, I think in terms of my career, the person that had a huge influence on me was my dissertation advisor, Dr. Mary Lou McEwen. Yeah. She was the one at Maryland who uh, turned the corner on um, what got taught in student development theory classes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think you know, she made a huge contribution to our field um, in doing that. And many people emulated her work yes. in that regard. Um, she, as I mentioned, I mean, she completely supported my foray into this idea of multiple identities. Um, one quick funny story, when I was taking my doctoral comprehensive exams, we have a question that addresses uh, what you say your dissertation focus will be. And the question that she gave me was about multiple factors of identity. And I sat in that room, I don't know, it felt like for hours, like factors, what in the world? Like, this is not a factor analysis. Like, what does she mean by factors? Um, so I, you know, I probably had like a little mini meltdown, talked to myself, wrote my response. And then I submitted my uh, first chapter to her on multiple factors of identity. And she writes back this comment, what do you mean by factors? It's like, yeah. oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> Um, I was like, okay, now I see how this is going to go. Uh, but um, there is no doubt in my mind that um, I would not be who I am as a faculty member. I, have, I would not have kind of gotten started writing and publishing if it were not for her mentoring and encouragement and, and support. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Mary Lou is, you know, another one that we should have on here as a legend. You know, you the, should. The she is a legend. She is a legend. I'm a mini legend compared to her. <laughs> well, we we stand on the on the shoulders, you know, Absolutely. Legends, right. So, yeah. Um. OK, so you've we've talked about how the you've retired now for two years and that blows me away because it still feels like this is your first semester you know, retired. Yeah. But we've talked about this and. We, you you look at this long arc of of your career. What's something that's important that you don't want to get lost in our work or in our profession? Hmm. You know, um, as you know, I I uh, am a bit of a history buff in the sense that I think we have to pay attention to history. You know, we have to learn from the mistakes of history. We have to understand history in order to understand um, what's happening now and, and how to move forward. And I've been thinking lately about, um, and I guess I should also say that, you know, most of my research has been about college students, less about the institutional environment, although they're related. Um, so I, you know, I've been thinking about the beginning of our profession and the historical commitment to the whole student right and what that means now um what that looks like now what um what uh setting students up for success looks like now um you know we used to always say you have to meet students where they are like what does that mean now mm -hmm. um and if, if we think about this from a theoretical perspective, which again was where my head was a lot, you know, we kind of started with this whole student with the assumption that if we knew some things, we could generalize it to everybody and it fit for all students. And then we sort of took the student apart and looked at them discreetly in terms of cognitive development and psychosocial and racial identity. And then we have sort of theoretically put the student back together again, if you will, uh -huh. with um, looking at social identities, self-authorship, some might argue um, is a holistic theory. Um, and I worry that uh, given what's happening institutionally, what's happening in terms of external influences on institutions of higher education, that we are losing sight of this commitment to the whole student and how that ought to be driving policies, practices, areas of emphasis um, in terms of institutional goals and outcomes. Yeah. Um, I think about the external forces, the internal forces, what we, we don't know enough about. And instead of racing towards what we don't know enough about to learn that there is this hesitation to move forward. Um, um, but we have some amazing guiding documents. Yes. If we yeah. have the time to go back to and remember, I think about the student personnel point of view, right? Which right. Is, now, you know, um, you know, I think Denny said it in his, Denny Roberts said it in his um, interview that we did with him that, you know, the document has some dated language in it, you know, even talking about student personnel, people aren't real clear on what that means. But if we could just move past some of that, 
it does return us to that which was most important, the student. Yeah, yeah. Our attempts to provide spaces for students to learn, grow, and develop. So, yeah, yeah I think that that would be um, really powerful. What do you think's ahead for us in the profession? Where, where are the places you have hope for us? And where are those places where you have some fear around um, the profession in particular, more so than higher ed, but, you know, the student affairs profession um i let me start with fears i guess <laughs> um and and i guess since i'm retired i just can say things more boldly yeah. than i might have said them before <laughs> uh you know i but i really worry that um some of these external influences on higher education, like governors picking presidents and boards of trustees and reviewing curriculum um, is going to uh, take us away from this commitment to yep. the, what we, what I think people in student affairs believe is the, the core mission of higher education. Um, I think it could uh, unravel years of work that folks in student affairs have been doing. Um, I'm thinking particularly, I mean, years ago, I think it might've been Harry Cannon who talked about student affairs as the moral campus. Mm -hmm. I mean, the moral compass, compass of the of campus. The campus. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think if we spin out some of these legislative proposals, um, it's going to significantly limit um, what folks in student affairs can do and what we know is the right thing to do. Yep. And not just because it's uh, a moral compass issue, but because we have years of educational research and years of people in the trenches doing the work who know better than politicians um, about how to create educational environments where all students can be successful. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, you know, I think COVID uh, was a, or is a game changer for higher education. I don't know that higher education will ever be the same as it was. And in some ways, maybe that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I think um, that if student affairs folks were feeling <coughs> tired before COVID, they're completely exhausted now. Um, the whole doing less is more mantra is, you know, people are gonna get tapped out. And I think we do see that in our profession that people are leaving the profession. Um, so, you know, I guess I just uh, worry um, that policies and practices are gonna be um, promoted and driven by people who don't have the knowledge that we do. That's right. Um, Driven from these um, personal opinions or, or, or what they see as moral and right. And I love that you added that, wait a minute, it's not just because we think it's moral and right. It's what our research is telling us. Our research right. has shown us that this is what makes a difference. Yeah. These are the ways in which folks, um, um, that, that environments are created so that students can learn. And that's all students, not the ones who don't need us to begin with to learn, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are the experts and we need That's to right. think about think about ourselves that way. And that this is not a new problem. I mean, I think no. as long as I've been in the field, I think student affairs um, on many campuses has been trying to demonstrate to the rest of the campus uh, that we are professionals, that we're trained, we're educated. There's a, a knowledge base that undergirds our practice. Um, and I think that's still going on. Uh, and that student affairs, academic affairs divide, I think it still exists. Um, you know, I see on campuses now, academic affairs taking on what had been the purview of student affairs. Which um, had been the purview of academic affairs 100 years ago or whatever. Right, yeah. So you and I have had this conversation, like, is this new or is this like the next iteration of what we've experienced before? Right. Um, and I've been thinking about that. And I think it's both and. Like, I think yeah. there are some new things. I don't think any of us have been through something like a pan a COVID before. Um, and I think um, some of these um, problems or challenges have been around for a long time and they've been ramped up because yeah. of COVID. Right, ramped um, up because of COVID and the um, the the parallel, well, maybe they're connected. Um, pandemic or the the newer version of the racial reckoning that we're in the midst yes. of right now, and them happening together in such big, profound, and prolific ways, I think, are making a difference. Yeah, and and I think both of those are impacted by these politically driven agendas that are yep. coming at institutions from outside. Yep, you're right. Yeah, I agree with you there. You know, I, I was thinking about as you, you know, we started off by mentioning some of the things and reminding or at least explaining for people who are newer to the field that, oh, it didn't exist this way before or, um, yeah, you wouldn't believe it, but this is how we used to teach this or how we used to teach it. And I'm wondering, you know, again, you've been in the field for a while. I've been right behind you. What are some of the most significant changes that you've seen in higher ed or in student affairs over the course of your career? What are some of those things that stand out for you? Uh, well, I mean, so I mentioned COVID. That definitely mm -hmm. is one. <laughs> I was, you know, my very last semester teaching was... 20, spring semester of 2020. So I thought I was going to get through my academic career without ever having to teach online. And I didn't make it. Yep. Um, <laughs> but I think that relates to maybe, I think I would say this, the biggest change has got to be technology. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I go way back, the way that you would solve problems um, or communicate with others on campus is that you would type them a memo and mm -hmm. put it in campus mail, or maybe you would pick up the phone and call them. Um, or if it was really important, you would wander down to their office. Right. Uh, you know, just from a communication standpoint, I think uh, technology has changed so much. I think technology and social media have changed so much um, in terms of uh, the lives of our students. Sure. Um, I think, uh, um, several people have written about this now that students coming to our campuses um, expect from campuses what they can get via 
their smartphones, um, mm -hmm. music, food, entertainment, relationships, um, and that 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 uh, has changed the interpersonal dynamic on campuses, I think. And then I the whole question of um, virtual learning. And uh -huh. uh, you know, I think the pandemic showed us that um, online learning does not mean uh, Zoom, that you, you know, you teach via Zoom, that there's so much more involved with creating active learning environments via technology and different and different platforms. Um, so uh, I don't think that's going to go away. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, hope, hopefully we can, you know, rein in the best that technology has to offer without, my opinion, turning everything over to um, a virtual campus. Right. Right, you know, um, the, the, the plus is about technology. I get to, you know, when I think about listening to music, I get to listen to the kind of music I want when I want to listen to it. The downside of that is that we have a much more fragmented um, shared experience. Right. of music. I mean, I remember the days of driving down with the in your car with the windows rolled down, you're listening <laughs> to the station, the person next to you is listening, you're both singing together, right? That's the or, shared experience. That was a shared experience <laughs> and we all knew what the top songs were, you know, and 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 now it's so different. So I think education's that way. If I get everything from my phone, you know, my advising, my this, my this, you know, like because I can read it myself, my experience on the campus is different than yeah. the student next to me. And so we've got to figure out some way of being able to harness that technology in such a way that we have enough of it that's shared so that we, um, we're still um, together and in community. I think that that changes a lot. So, yeah, you know, I have to tell you, um, you know, we are, we are winding down in terms of our time, you know, we're, just about out of time for this podcast. And so I'm wondering, is there anything else that you'd like to offer? Anything else that you'd like to say? Perhaps something that's, that you've been thinking about or or that's troubling to you or pondering? I know we hit on a couple of those, but I want to see if there's anything else that-, that well, I think I, I probably led with fear more than hope. So yeah. um, maybe I um, want to end by saying that I have always believed and I continue to believe that the folks who go into student affairs um, are, are people who want to make a difference on college campuses and want to make a difference in the lives of students. Um, and that those are the people often when somebody looks back on their college experience, it's those student affairs educators mm -hmm. um, that they identify as making a difference in their lives and that um, I have a lot of hope for the future when I think about the values and the commitments of our field and the people who enter the field. Yeah. And that's not to say that we don't have more work to do. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, particularly like putting into practice what we, what we know. Um, uh, but I, when I, all my years of teaching, I would always end my classes thinking I have hope for the future because mm -hmm. these students in my classes are bright, 
they're inquisitive, they're asking good questions, they want to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I do love ending on that hope because that's true. It's true at the end of every semester. It's the truest at the end of every year. And it's true at the beginning of the year when we're just starting out and we see it. So, yeah, this has been terrific. You know, I really want to thank you for sharing about yourself, sharing your thoughts with us um, and your contributions. Um, and I really appreciate you doing it, knowing that it wasn't um your ideal goal you tried to talk me out of it so many different ways but i appreciate <laughs> your being here i also want thank to thank you our for your persistence yeah yeah <laughs> that is me persistent <laughs> i want to also thank our sponsor of today's episode simplicity simplicity is the global leader in student affairs service technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals a true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success and accessibility services. To learn more, visit Simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Hey, a huge shout out to our producer, Natalie Ambrosi, who does all of the behind the scenes work to make us look and sound good. And if you found today's content useful, please let us know by giving us a five-star rating or write a review on iTunes. This really helps us. I'm Rochelle Pope. Thanks again to Susan Jones and to everyone who's watching or listening. Hey, look, make the rest of this a great week. <laughs>